morning, brothers and sisters. Reverend Charles Haddon Spurgeon is a man known as Prince of Preachers, uh, amazing man from the 19th century. He said of this psalm, it is a Bible within itself. It's just a majestic piece of the Holy Scripture. Spurgeon also said, it contains too much for 1,000 pens to write. Too much for 1,000 pens to write. So it would be quite silly of us to expect the message on this to be a concise 15 minutes or so. Hope you've bought your lunch. <laughs> I've actually uh, historically had a couple of problems with this psalm. And uh, one was the old translation that I grew up with. Uh, many of us, King James, um, it, the word was, bless the Lord, O my soul. Uh, later translations use the word praise. And I, I struggled with that because I thought, well, how can I, as a sinful fallen human being, how can I bless the Almighty? Well, perhaps we may answer that this morning. And my second problem was the covenantal piece there in verse, uh, say, 17 and on. From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love with those who fear him, his righteousness with their children's children. Well, that's fabulous. But then it says, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. Again, big problem for me. Big problem. So this morning, what I want us to do is I want you to have a timeline in your mind. And at the far end of the stage there, we're going back to 1000 BC because that is the time, roughly the time, at which uh, David wrote this psalm. So around that time. And the, the background to uh, his writing of the psalm was that the people of Israel considered themselves by God's gift and goodness to be the unique people of God. They were the people... Uh, who drew their lineage all the way back to uh, Abraham in Genesis 12 through 17. They, they were children of Abraham. And, and all, all through uh, their history, they had been given by God his instruction and his guidance. Hadn't he, after all, delivered them from slavery in Egypt, the glorious exodus out of Egypt, and eventually up into the Promised Land? So they were the special people. They were the favoured people of God. He had brought them out of slavery. He'd given them into the promised land. God had spoken to them through Moses. Uh, David just slightly alludes to it in verse 7. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. Now, they would have been thinking back. They knew their history. They knew who they were. They knew who God was. They knew what God had done for them. And so they were aware of the whole sacrificial system that they had been given, the Levitical priesthood, all of those things. They celebrated the Passover, remembering that glorious time when the Lord passed over them as they had sprinkled the blood of the firstborn on the door frames, on the lintels, of course, uh, for uh, looking forward to the Lord Jesus 
the firstborn of God, so to speak. So these were people who lived in a, with a sense of deliverance. They were probably considered themselves quite unique and con considering the whole uh, unfolding of God's redemptive uh, work with them, uh, I think they're entitled. You know, they, they go back to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the 12 tribes. And they knew, despite their many frailties and failings, that God had given them a sacrificial system in which they may worship him. Sacrifices for their sin, for their guilt. Fellowship sacrifices to, to uh, emphasise their, their relationship with God. And so when David writes this psalm, the original hearers, indeed David himself, they, they would have known all of this. This was the context in which this psalm comes out. I want you then to come forward another thousand years on the timeline to the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, between David and Christ, the people of Israel had, had let's call it a, <clears throat> a rocky history, so to speak. God was always faithful. That was never the problem. The problem was the people, because they were just like us. They had gone through the exiles, the ten northern tribes at first, then the two uh, southern tribes. They'd, they'd gone through all of that. God had given them his commandments and so on. The, they had experienced God's judgment historically as a people. They experienced God's rescuing as he brought people back to the promised land under Ezra and Nehemiah. And the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of them, they were always speaking into the life of God's people and indeed to the nations, but primarily into the life of God's people and they were promising the one who would come, Messiah. And so he came, the Christ, the fulfilment of all Old Testament prophecy. All those sacrifices pointed to him. All the prophecy pointed to him. He was the centre of God's unfolding redemption plan. He was our great high priest, our once for all sacrifice. He is the one who truly opened up for us to have relationship with God. On the cross of Calvary, when he died, as he died and said, it is finished, the price is paid, that temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom symbolising that it was now an open pathway in, unto God and his presence through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is 
our Passover lamb. Let's come forward then to today. This psalm that we just read, this Bible within itself, to quote my Baptist brother, he was a Reformed Baptist, incidentally, but that's still there. You cannot read this psalm without seeing the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or you can, but you're not reading it correctly. You're not getting the right message. It would be terrible if any of us here or anyone else just read this psalm and without any understanding of the background, uh, the Christology of the psalm, and, and, and said, well, I'm all right. God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. He's a God of love. It'll be okay. That would be horrendous. It would be a complete misunderstanding of the psalm. Because when we read this psalm, the words of the Holy Scripture resonate with us. When God said to the evil one following the fall, the seed of the woman will crush your head and you will strike his feet. Right then at the beginning, way back before the 1000 BC, God prophesied the one who would come. And God in his holy revelation has shown to us clearly again and again and again that all those sacrifices are done and finished and that now there is no other name under heaven by which we may be saved except that of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And the scripture records gloriously that anyone who trusts in his will, in him, will never be put to shame. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So this morning as we read this psalm, I don't know you. I, I know some of you in some ways, but in a way I do know you all because I know there is not a single solitary person in this building who does not deserve to go to hell. You know, sometimes I think we, we, we think we're a bit brighter and shinier than you know, the average bear. You know, we're sort of all right, sort of. I don't want to offend you. Actually, I do. We need to realise how great our sin and misery is before a just and a holy God. And we need to realise the only way we can be saved from that sin and misery is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And only Christ could achieve all the benefits of Psalm 103. Only he could do it. So 
I would then like to apply this psalm to you personally. This is where it gets good. I was going to ask you, I'm not going to do this, but I was going to ask you to respond to Psalm 103, the glorious grace of God, the mercy of God poured out in Psalm 103. And I was going to ask you, what does that mean for you? And so I, I had in mind, you know, that, that perhaps uh, we might have, you know, you said something and then Carol would on the magic and it would come up here. Uh, but I'm not going to do that. But what are some of the things, what difference does this psalm make to you? I, I think I can be so bold as to say, if this psalm doesn't make any difference to you, you, you walk out the same way you walked in, you've got a problem. How can you come and worship the almighty God, be reminded of the grace of God for you in the Lord Jesus, and just carry on? And without being unkind to you, don't we all do that to some degree every Sunday? This psalm brings us incredible comfort. It brings us blessed assurance. It brings us encouragement beyond anything that this world can offer. It brings us the motivation to live. And so you and I, because we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds as we hear this word of God also again this morning, you and I are to be having our lives constantly transformed, reformed, whatever formed word you want to use, by the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. So now those of you who were here last week, you may remember that I gave you homework. It was cheeky, I know, I'm not your pastor, but I knew what was coming this Sunday. And our pastor finished off his sermon brilliantly, as usual, but he did an absolute sensational with the last part of Romans 8. That was masterful. Uh, Romans uh, yeah, Romans 8. So I said, please go home and read Romans 8. Now comes the telling time. We will not raise hands because your pastor would cry if he saw how few of you did it. But Romans 8 begins, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus... The law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. 
no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he has paid the price fully and completely. No sacrifice left for sin. So when you read Psalm 103, he does not treat us as our sins deserve, repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, and so on and on it goes. How does that impact the way you see yourself? Forgiven. Completely. No condemnation before a righteous and a holy God of all authority and all power. I grew up in a family where when my dad came to faith uh, in his mid-30s and um, I don't mean to be unkind or anything but it's a bit like, you know, a reformed drunk, you know, someone gets off the, her, the, the, the turps and then all of a sudden they're zealous for, you know, what have you. Dad was a bit like that with God. <laughs> Not a bad father to have, mind you. But dad had a, an understanding of the majesty and the glory and the holiness of God. And he was afraid that people would take godly, God too cheaply. And although I think in this he was incorrect, he was very wary of preachers like his son saying it's all done, nothing left to do, it's all of grace, completely finished, saved and redeemed, no sacrifice for sin left. Because dad would say, laddie, that's the thin edge of the wedge. People will take it all too easily. But I think that's the teaching of the scripture. Our starting point has to be, yes, in how good and glorious God is. But then, see, I really, you can't hear me if I don't, if I, I'm locked in here, am I? Ah. I, I, I believe, I believe that we are, too much, no disrespect to the pulpit at all. We're locked in somehow here when God would have us out there exploding with the glory of his mercy and grace to us, rejoicing in our Father's love. 
What holds us back? I know it's a complicated thing. But what's the real driver in your life and in mine? I want to reinforce the wonder of our position before God with some words here from a catechism from the 16th century. I'm one of those old blokes who reckon these old catechisms have got a lot to teach us. The catechism, that's a Heidelberg catechism, has just finished dealing with uh, the truth of the Apostles' Creed and it asks the question, what good does it do you, however, to believe all this? And the answer is, in Christ I am right with God and heir to life everlasting. That's pretty good, isn't it? That's, that's a pretty good statement. I am right with God and an heir to life everlasting. See, what that little question does to me, it allows me to just sort of Put the rejoicing and all the, the full-blown all-in-for-God sort of in the eternity sort of thing, not now. And then it asks this question, how are you right with God? And the answer is only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Incidentally, for those of you who are writing it down, it's Lord's Day 23, question and answer 60 of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's almost as good as Romans 8 for you to read. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and of never having kept any of them, and even though I am still inclined towards all evil, nevertheless, without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness and holiness of Christ as if I'd never sinned or been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. And all I need to do is to accept this gift of God with a believing heart. Oh, brothers and sisters, do you not hear the grace of God? Do you not hear, feel the love of your heavenly Father? that though your sins are a scarlet, because Christ has paid for you, in God's sight you are white as snow. Forgiven. Set free to live for him. How are you right with God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. For even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and of never having kept any of them, and even though I am still inclined towards all evil, Bernie, thank you for the way you led early in the service. Spot on, spot on. We don't come ripping into God's presence without an awareness of our, our ongoing need. But nevertheless... Out, without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness and holiness of Christ as if I'd never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me.
What's our pastor's favourite Bible verse? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Staggering, isn't it? Amazing grace. Glorious love. And now I begin to think that in this life and in the world to come, I will be able to say, oh, bless you, almighty God. Bless your holy name. Because of the glory of who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, what he's going to continue to do. There's something holy about this. And we need, I believe, to appropriate this personally in the first place and then to extend that grace to each other. This is a very poor example, but I could say not only do we individually need to take off the mask of our sin and be open with God, but we need to do that with each other. Now, some of you have been part of this church for a very long time. Some of you all your lives. I think that's correct. It's somewhat difficult to be in a church church for a very, very long time. Partly because you can see the frailties of others and things happen and they tend to stick in our consciousness. But at the same time, the other people who've been around a long time, they look at me... And they see my frailties, my failures too, the ungodliness. See, I think you can keep up a relative front for a little while, but eventually the real you comes through. And how do we deal with that? We see each other in the light of of the gospel forgiven and he says forgive just as I have forgiven you
Now I have to backtrack. It's very unfortunate I have to do this, but I said that whole covenant business. Who's going to keep his covenant, remember to obey his precepts? Who can do that? Only Christ. Christ is the faithful covenant partner. So thank you, Dave, for assigning me this text because it reminded me again of the greatness of the Lord Jesus, the wonder of God's love for us, majesty, and that he would extend his grace sinful men and women, boys and girls, such as we are. And then he says to you, in the end of that psalm, that glorious cosmic bursting forth of praise and glory to him, that we are to respond in unison with all of created reality. He says, praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, all you servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. And brothers and sisters, you and I are part of that. Magnify, magnify the Lord our God. Just to show you how um, gracious I am, I'm going to quote another Baptist to close. John Piper, contemporary. Piper says, and he's dead right, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. That's really deep. That, that's a couple of sermons on its own. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. When we apply, experience, acknowledge and live the truth of his gospel love toward us. That's when we're really blessing the Lord. But because I am reformed, by way of theology, hopefully life as well, but that's an ongoing process, I really can't let the Baptists have the last say. So we return to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question and answer one. What is the chief end of man? What is the chief purpose why are you here? To know God and enjoy him forever. Enjoy him forever. Well, brothers and sisters, may we, may we as a congregation of his people, may we encourage one another in the gospel in the glory of God's grace. And since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, 
by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And let's not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let us pray. Almighty God, God of all power and authority, how amazing it is that we can lift our hearts to you now in prayer. And we acknowledge we can only do that because you, by the power of your spirit and the light of your word, you have broken into the darkness of our lives and you have opened our hearts. You've granted us New life in Christ. You've caused your people to be born again. To live for you and live with you. So Father, this morning we pray again that you would take your word and Lord, drive it into deep into our hearts, into our minds, into our lives. And help us to appropriate the fullness of your grace and mercy extended to us and help us to encourage one another increasingly as we await the coming of the Lord Jesus on the clouds of glory. Take us and use us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.